0: From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. Before the pandemic, we were the show that invited scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for informal conversations about their work. And we look forward to being that show again one day. But for now, we're recording remotely to maintain physical distancing. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Thanks for stopping by. Alyssa Bereznak is a staff writer for TheRinger.com. She covers tech and culture with a focus on media, celebrity, and how the internet is changing our lives. All these interests came together in a podcast she recently hosted and reported for The Ringer about a trivia app for your smartphone that aimed to do nothing less than change the future of television. As you'd probably guess, it didn't quite get there. Alyssa's podcast, Boom Bust, The Rise and Fall of HQ Trivia, tells that story while delving into the workings of our attention economy across eight compelling and insightful episodes. We started our conversation with HQ Trivia, its meteoric rise to daily must-watch status for millions of people, and what was on the other side of that peak. That then led us to discussing the experience of making a podcast during the pandemic, and other elements of our current media and internet landscape, including what happens at the Ringer when one of the biggest musicians in the world announces out of nowhere she has a new album coming that day at midnight. And I promise you, Alyssa's tweet length review of Taylor Swift's folklore is not one to be missed. Alyssa Bereznak, welcomed with A Side of Knowledge.
1: Thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: So the podcast you just reported and hosted for The Ringer, Boom Bust, The Rise and Fall of HQ Trivia, I'm one of those people that, before I listened to the show, I had what you'd probably call a passing familiarity with what HQ Trivia was, and I guess still kind of is right in a, in a way. Um, people need to listen to your podcast if they want to get the whole story, but how would you describe HQ at its peak, what it was?
1: It was a live game show where people could win thousands of dollars, potentially. Um, It was interactive. It was beamed to everyone's home through a smartphone. And it was a giant fad for a little bit. Like, people loved it. They would stop. It would air at... Um, 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern time every day for a little bit. And people were interrupting their work days and their lives, you know, their dinners just to get on this app. It, it really was a moment of community on the Internet.
0: And, and when we talk about, mo- I mean, just to kind of give people a sense of the timeline, it, did it start in 2017? Is yes. Is that right?
1: Exactly. Hey. Yeah.
0: And now we're and now we're looking back at it in 2020. So this wasn't a long moment.
1: That's how time moves now. I mean, especially in the startup industry and especially when it comes to internet fads, right?
0: Right, right. One of the things I loved in the first episode there was you used a clip from the Ringer offices of people playing HQ. What was what was your own experience with it like? Because I, I thought you did a good job of kind of drawing on and painting a picture of No, really, at 3 and 9 o'clock every day for people who played this, this was a really big deal.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it. I think especially in in cities, um, places where there's office culture and um, people are, you know, there's already a kind of community and people have a lot of opportunities after work to spend time together at bars. You know, like there's just like after when you're in New York, after work, you just go to a bar and you hang out with your friends and it's possible that you could end up playing this game together. But for us at work, I mean, I was based in Brooklyn then I'm in LA now, we would interrupt our day (laughs) and we we would like talk about it on Slack. I mean, for a while, we had a random Slack channel that was basically just dedicated to what was happening on HQ and who got which question. Um, (laughs) but we would like kind of prep five minutes before, and then we would all sit in a circle like in our chairs with our phones out and sort of confer on each question, like, w- what's the answer to this one? Is it A, B or C? And then like one by one, we would all get out, except for my colleague Roger, who was like a, a trivia genius. I mean, he still is um, and ended up making so much money on HQ. Um, but yeah, the clip that I shared, I wasn't even in the LA office then, but I was kind of asking around to see if anyone had like a good moment. Because oftentimes when things got down to the wire and you were like still in around the 12th question, everyone's nerves would get really intense and everyone would just be like spinning around and screaming. And yeah, a couple of my colleagues were... Definitely doing that and interrupted the recording of uh, a Chris Ryan podcast, <laughs> so that was fun. <laughs> well,
0: and there's that and it's not someone at the ringer, but there's also that clip you use of the woman just completely going crazy, and you and you play the clip of it, and it's she won eleven dollars, and it's just like clearly this was about a lot more than the money to people.
1: Completely, I mean, it, there's just such a thrill of. I mean, not only winning in front of a bunch of people, but playing it with everyone. You saw the little number of people in the top left-hand corner of the screen every game. And once it was like really climbing and getting into the millions, you felt like you were part of an event.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because there was a line that you had that, I I mean, I thought it captured the Internet really well. You said every day on the Internet is kind of like walking down the Las Vegas Strip because there's – all these things coming from all these different directions that all want your attention, all at the same time. And there's this really kind of small subset. I, I, using the word viral these days feels like an odd thing, but that that's the word that we, you know, something goes viral that captures a whole bunch of people's attention. But you pointed out that, you know, HQ kind of seemed to travel a different kind of path towards virality. And ultimately, you know, it's a $100 million valuation. Can you... Explain a little bit more why you feel like HQ got so popular so fast.
1: It was first of all designed to, um, to go viral because of that number in the top left hand corner. I mean, people like just being a company that tracks your stats in such a public way and projects them to everyone is in itself a a way to draw more people people are excited about a thing that other people are doing that's sort of the point of virality but at the same time like right around the same time they were getting big they had a huge media snafu and it drew a lot of attention um, a lot of media attention that got them a lot of exposure but it did sort of set them up as like this problematic startup, this hot but problematic startup that everyone needed to watch. And so that was part of it. It it was representative of this new kind of um, startup that becomes a darling immediately and all of a sudden has to live up to these really high expectations about um, what they're going to accomplish. You know, like if they're hitting millions of users within... The first year of their company then they need to think bigger they need to think about how they're going to get to like five million or you know i mean silicon valley is sort of um has a quenchless thirst when it comes to that kind of thing like right. r- reaching a certain goalposts posts and and numbers i mean look at facebook all, all these years they still want to grow they still want to expand their reach
0: Well, that i i always remember you know that Seen how true to life it was or not, but from the social network when they're sitting there and they're counting. I think it was was a one millionth user. I think when they're counting down to that and just that idea of, all right, this is a thing, and exactly like you said, it's quenchless. Well, it's not enough to be this thing. What is the thing that we're going to be next, and how do we keep growing towards that?
1: Yeah, and in a way, that's you know modern capitalism. Like uh, I think that. Every company has an element of that, especially publicly traded ones. I think it's just now that we're trying to examine the other purposes that major companies with a lot of money can play in our society, like supporting workers and things like that.
0: (laughs) So HQ, I mean, we just use kind of the the Facebook example there. HQ is not Facebook. It got popular so fast until it wasn't. Is... HQ in, in some ways kind of like an allegory for kind of what happens on the internet of things are there and then they're gone because people's attention moves on. How, how do you do you see it as a cautionary tale? How, how do you see it in kind of the bigger, I guess, ecosystem of what the internet is?
1: Yeah, I would say it's definitely a cautionary tale. And I would say it's also just a really interesting specimen of our attention economy. It's it's something that could never exist without it, but what also sort of died because of that. <laughs> and, right. and to be clear, the game is still online. Um, it's not what it used to be. And it, uh, some might call it a, like it's in a new zombie stage, <laughs> um, as we often <laughs> see digital media companies. And, but yeah, I, it's a cautionary tale because the attention economy, it it, it is... It doesn't really have an attention span. It it, right. it jumps around and what, really
0: quickly. And, and I mean, you you cover internet culture and tech culture. When when you say attention economy, what specifically are you? Is it the the quest for likes and retweets? Is it more than that? What what is it exactly?
1: Yeah, exactly. This uh, this endless quest for engagement, engagement right. and approval, and doing the right numbers on the internet um it's really hard to do that it's really hard to stay relevant online because people just don't have the attention spans for that and like i said it's walking down the las vegas strip it's there's so many companies that are putting their all into trying to get the attention of a person and keep them in their app and when you dedicate the greatest minds of a generation to creating algorithms to help with that (laughs) that's when you like really get (laughs) in a lot of trouble like I think that it's definitely affecting us in ways that we, we can't quite put our finger on. So I thought that especially this in terms of thinking about HQ and how Silicon Valley works, they were also given this $100 million valuation because of the engagement they were able to get. with without actually proving that they could be a business. (laughs) And and that was really fascinating to me that that Silicon Valley, I mean, there are lots of examples of this and it's almost become a sport of technology journalists to sort of call them early. But I I really do think that in this case, they were set up for failure because their giant selling point was that number in the top left corner of their screen.
0: Right. In the course of... You reporting the podcast, one thing that struck me is that we heard some people you interviewed say that the idea behind HQ or what it was, it wasn't just a trivia app. It was going to redefine television and in, in the way we consume that kind of content. And on the one hand, that sounds kind of ridiculous now. But on the other hand, I'm wondering if you see echoes of it in something like Quibi, whose model is... Television quality content designed to consume in like eight or nine minutes on your phone.
1: Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned Quibi because at the end of the series, when I was asking my beloved Boom Best listeners, my BBs, <laughs> um, what, like your cuties right? yeah, my, yeah, they're, they're my BBs. Um, your BBs. <laughs> when I was asking them like, what would you like for a season two? Like, what what should I do next? I got a lot of suggestions for Quibi because mm. it. I mean, I think Quibi is actually somewhat different from HQ in the sense that the ideas for Quibi were born from people who might not necessarily understand the internet. So they didn't actually start with the idea that... Or they didn't actually start with a bunch of users. They just decided, our attention spans are short now, so let's make content that sort of aligns with that. Um, But I think the issue with them is that they, they didn't actually have proven test cases of this like they they and it seems like so much money to spend on something that's so short i think that's an important thing to remember too people on the internet when things go viral it doesn't matter the quality the camera quality or anything like that i mean it's it's about whether or not you get a quick emotion from it And it's not too complicated. I mean, that can be a bad thing. But when it's like something funny that a dog is doing, it's the greatest thing ever. (laughs) You watch it three times in a row and you're like, I feel wonderful. That's a hit of dopamine. So I think like that is one of the reasons why it's confusing, like why Quibi exists. I don't know if it needs to exist. I think it was kind of a cynical vision of what our attention economy has become without quite understanding that... Um, people in the world still like quality entertainment and they still like quality things and especially because these quibby shows you know that I think there's talk about making them interactive and adjust for their like making them adjust to the medium of a phone but in the end it's like we're good we've got tiktok we we have like twitter that these are the places where we're finding funny things that don't cost any money they're just organic and authenticity is like definitely part of that you want to not feel like it's too forced
0: it seemed like if i was listening right that you had all or most of the interviews for the show done before quarantine but that you ended up making a lot of the show once you were in quarantine how was that experience of making a podcast during a pandemic for you
1: you know, it was actually very soothing. It was great to have a sense of focus in a moment where everyone was panicking and didn't really know what to do with themselves. Like, I was able to pay attention to all the chaos happening in our world. And, you know, was still very hard. Like, this pandemic hasn't been easy for anyone. But I was really grateful that I had a project and a purpose every day. <laughs> it was like, yeah. th- this is a thing that needs to be made. And meeting and working with my producers and my editor was really nice it was great to like see them every day and have that exchange and in a way that took um sort of the place of a regular workplace interaction or even not seeing my friends because at the beginning I'm sure like you you know no one was going out everyone was being extremely confined but you know there were like lots of sort of ridiculous things that we didn't take into account like they had to get me set up with my audio equipment here and um one day like I ran out of batteries for on my recorder and realized I didn't have any more and so we were like oh okay well that's gonna take a little bit um or on it was you know there were kind of there was a heat wave in LA around that time and there were days where we had to like schedule when I was gonna do it because I was doing it in my closet which is not a walk-in closet. It's just a large closet. Right. And it was uncomfortable. I had to get like a special pillow to put beneath my back. And it got really hot. Like I couldn't breathe yeah. at certain points. And so I know, I mean, I maybe someone can detect this, but there's probably a little bit of tape in there of me like gasping for air as I'm explaining <laughs> the downfall of HQ. It was, it, it was an experience. And in fact, I've been joking to people that I have post podcasts, depression kind of like postpartum partum depression because i need a new baby to focus on
0: i was going to say do you, do you know what your next project is yet or you're still kind of in that maybe more of a writing phase right now or
1: yeah we're in the brainstorming phase i you know yeah. we got a lot of feedback from fans of the show and i'm just really grateful for the sort of outpouring of support i never expected that and it's been really wonderful to hear that this story spoke to people. So I'm just trying to make sure that I find something that speaks to people and, but also touches on a different topic. Um, Quibi has been suggested. Movie pass has been suggested. Mm. Um, we're still, we're still in the brainstorming phase, but I think we'll be uh, kicking off something new soon. And it, it, you know, it could be a season to a boom bust, but it could be something else. We don't want to feel confined to the idea of the rise and fall of something. Um, it, sure. You know, or or you could think about Boombust in a a different sort of frame, like putting it on a a sports team or something. That's not for me. <laughs> I'm just I'm just now learning about the NBA despite my workplace. But I, I am just really excited to be able to tell dynamic stories where the characters can come to life as someone who's written features for most of her career. It was so gratifying to let listeners hear the characters themselves get an idea of what the stakes were and kind of make judgment calls about who was reliable um where each person was um fell in their vision of morality of doing the right thing in the situation and that's one of my favorite things has been talking to people and hearing that they have different opinions than i did and i was able to sort of present it to them where they could make their own decision
0: yeah well we'll definitely um Put the link to the the show in the episode notes because it's a, it's an eight episode run, and I think you know if you're listening to this and enjoying it, um, you'll definitely in- enjoy the podcast. I I did want to ask you some about your writing as well because um, you are a great writer and write features for the Ringer. And Thank you. You recently had a, a piece on there that it had a through line to this you know this conversation about internet culture. It was about how kids and teenagers are using social platforms like TikTok to manage their images in ways that child and teen stars of the past couldn't do, including using those platforms to become famous in the first place in a way that, you know, before there was kind of this casting director that always had to be the gatekeeper of, oh, are you going to become famous or not? And now, even if the camera's just on on your iPhone, like that could be a path to really building a following online. How do you think that affects both the kid who's becoming famous and the audience who's consuming that fame.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there was a really interesting study that was done a a year or two ago about just surveying teens and asking them what they would want to be. I think like, And one of the questions would you be was like, do you want to be an astronaut? And then another question was like, would you like to be a YouTube star? And like overwhelmingly kids from the US and the UK chose YouTube star over astronaut. And I've just thought about that for a while. I think our lives are so digital now that in a way our digital identities are sometimes um, stronger than our own sense of self. I think because there are all these best practices that you put into Creating a strong personal brand that can, you know, benefit you monetarily, you're not actually putting the same amount of resources into strengthening who you are and and your own uh, emotional truths and things like that. And so, I think in some ways it's very empowering. I mentioned specifically with young sort of child actors or child stars that this is a moment where they can actually take control of their narrative in a way that they wouldn't be able to before. I I think we saw a lot of tragic cases with child stars who really couldn't handle the fame because the media took whatever um, misstep they they did and ran with it. But now it's like, at the very least, they're making money off of their missteps. Like They might still be (laughs) partying during the coronavirus, but that footage is on their phone and they're getting dragged on it, but that's also bringing engagement. To their accounts so i think it's a really interesting dynamic because also bad behavior is rewarded like people i think child stars especially sometimes couldn't help their bad behavior um, in the beginning but they were still rewarded for it in the gossip tabloids and now we're in a much more accelerated version of that i find it really fascinating because it it scares me. I, I myself have, have um sort of fallen into this idea that my personal brand could replace who I am or, or stand in for who I am. When that's a question that I think human beings need to be asking themselves every single day, what, who I am, what do I want? What are the emotional tools I need to, to, to confront my life in real life? <laughs> um, right. And yeah, yeah, so I, and that is a theme that is strung throughout all of my work I am really fascinated with celebrity and identity and the idea of our digital selves
0: well I mean speaking of celebrity and identity and brands uh, this isn't I mean it's not directly internet culture but certainly supported by it Taylor Swift uh, she she recently dropped a new album folklore that she announced what like 18 hours before before it went out. Yeah. Uh, it, it was certainly breaking news in my house. <laughs> and you were one of the Ringer staff members called on to contribute to the site's exit survey about the album. Your tweet-length review was great, so I want to read it here. It was, Summer has been canceled. If you need me, I will be making pumpkin pie and carving my and my cat's initials into the base of a giant redwood tree in an oversized sweater, which was fabulous. So <laughs> you said that... I I, I feel like there's there's countless podcasts devoted to taylor swift and branding and image and how you know how you manage these things but uh i i wanted to ask you 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 felt like it was the best album that she's ever made which in the case of someone as prolific and as popular as her it's a significant statement to make why did you feel that way about folklore and i've heard it so many times in my house i'm not saying i disagree <laughs> at all i just i i i'm curious why it 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 resonated that much with you
1: I think it during the pandemic I've had a lot of days that feel like the Sunday scaries even though it's not Sunday Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and it because I've just had so much time to reflect on my entire life like that's you know when you have this much time alone I'm living alone my roommate uh, is she has a a condition that would make her very vulnerable to to the disease so she's not here right now and I have been thinking about all my life choices. Like I, I am, been in really in my feelings, and you know, I I think Taylor Swift is an interesting person uh, in the context of celebrity and identity. Her recent documentary *Miss Americana* came out on Netflix, and that kind of explained some of the moments that I was really disappointed in her. <laughs> you know, but mm. she was also going through her own stuff. There was always more context. And that's a great reminder when you're thinking about celebrity or identity. There's always more context and the person is usually trying like doing the best they can. But I I thought that her album was the best album because it felt the most authentic. Like to me, she's always been a storyteller. Her strength is in the lyrics and the writing and the tapestries she weaves that are really complicated um, with the imagery of her lives and how that's sort of assigned subtly to different lovers or different stages and this was pure storytelling it was like all the pop stuff stripped away I mean don't get me wrong like 1989 was a very important album for me and it was a perfect like early 20s sort of vision for pop that will not be forgotten in my mind Uh, and I I found it really great but I, I thought folklore was really authentic. And um, I just really appreciate the change from the more effusive sort of bubblegum pop to something more reflective, especially when we're all stuck at home right now.
0: So when there's breaking pop culture news like that, because this really, I mean, this was, my wife came into my office that morning, was like, oh my, like what, what happened while I was asleep? She's coming out with a new album tonight. How is this happening? Is that, how does that work at a place like The Ringer? Is that an all hands on deck, give me your, best take email or slack or how, how do how do all of you get selected then to kind of contribute? Cause the exit survey model is very cool. It's a lot of different people kind of contributing their thoughts within the first, you know, 24 hours or whatever it is. How does that, how does that all come together?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, you probably have to ask my editors for the true behind the scenes
0: <laughs> version
1: because I'm just the person who's paying to be like, Oh, you're going to participate. Right. I mean, I, we've, I've been working at the ringer for over four years now. Um, generally you can tell what gets people excited at the Ringer slack. Like if a lot of people respond to the news, you know, someone drops a link and then other people have opinions about it. And then like 20 minutes later, one of the editors comes around and is like, we're doing an exit survey. Um, so sometimes it's driven by our own internal conversations. And sometimes it's just like, okay, well if it's as big as a surprise Taylor Swift album, like there's obviously going to be an exit survey. I've written about Taylor Swift a little bit. I've been a fan for a long time. So Andrew Gutedaro was like, of course, you're going to contribute to this, right? And even though I had the day off, the day was due. I did it in the morning because I cared enough. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's kind of fun. I mean, that's the point of the ringer, right? Like it's uh, sort of water cooly in that sense um, that if something happens on the internet, we're going to reply to it. And at this point, I don't know if anyone has like truly hyperventilated over something breaking because we're all like hairy journalists who's <laughs> who, who just expects that the stuff is not going to be announced you know we've lived through beyonce album drops with no warning like we right. we know what's up <laughs>
0: sure. well you can read her on the ringer there's a, a great piece you did earlier this summer uh about the bail bond industry which was really enlightening and people you know can check that out and of course the podcast um, is Boom Bust, The Rise and Fall of HQ Trivia. Alyssa Bresneck, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Ted. It was really fun.
0: With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is withasideofpod.nd.edu.